Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we talk with Scott LaPriese, founder and senior analyst at Research from Beijing, a boutique sell-side research firm helping investors understand China. We talk about the importance of understanding the language and its nuances to really being able to understand how they truly operate both culturally and in business. We talk about what communism is in 2020 and, in Scott's opinion, how it is actually an emperorship with massive capitalistic influences. We talk about the importance of Guanxi and how it can affect brand loyalty and customer retention. We talk about the actual rate of consumerism tying in a discussion of environmental impact and is our Western impression of their impact accurate, precise, or neither. We discuss whether China is truly innovative, in Scott's opinion, or whether they are simply masters of adaptation. Scott has a very interesting take on the US-China trade war and the impact it will have and on whom. We talk about why being a financial analyst in China is an incredible complicated and nuanced art and we talk about the one belt one road initiative and why the western media is misunderstanding china's intentions investing in building so much infrastructure in foreign countries we cover a lot of ground so buckle up and enjoy in my time working in the medical industry you would actually see the smallest brands in the world be very successful in the medical industry because they were willing to be flexible and work with the Chinese much more than the big brands. The big brands always think that they're going to lose something. They always approach China from the point, how, you know, what am I going to lose? Where the smaller brands can be successful because they look at what's the opportunity. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore. But entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so you are currently based in Beijing, correct? Correct. Been in Beijing for the last 20, almost 23 years, and in Asia for 30 years. I was in Singapore previously. Tell us about your story. How'd you end up in China and kind of what you've been doing up till now? So I started my career in diagnostic medicine. I worked for a company called Abbott Laboratories and then eventually changed to uh, Syntex and some other pharmaceutical companies. And I worked eventually, I started in Canada, got transferred into the US and then they asked me to move to Asia and run the Asian business. And I got transferred into Singapore. And then of course, in those days, that's in the 90s, mid 90s, everybody was asking me about China. I was making lots of trips there trying to update the board of directors on what was going on, what should our strategy be. And then I finally decided, geez, I may as well just move there. Uh, we went through a merger and acquisition. I went to university, studied Chinese, then started working again in more diagnostic companies until about 10 years ago, I switched into the uh, uh, financial side of things and be became a China analyst. But I would say the, you know, it's, I got thrown into here from the company perspective but for me, it was a very smooth transition. I like the Asian culture. I you know, I prefer Chinese food to anything. 
Um, so it's been a it's been a good transition. Plus, speaking the language, I feel really opens up China. You know, just completely. You have complete access. I've been to every single province in China. I've driven half of it. Uh, you know, been through Central Asia, so I, I'm pretty knowledgeable about the area and the different regions. Talk to me a little bit about you mentioned it. The importance of the language to really understand where you are, what you're doing, how to do it well. Talk to us a little bit about your thoughts on the importance of language. Yeah, I would say out of you know, I, I speak four languages. I've been to more than eighty countries, but I would say China is probably the most important to understand the language. And the reason is, it's there's a Chinese word called guandian, your point of view. The Chinese look at problems completely differently from the opposite way that we would look at things.、Uh, you know, you look at the case now. We're in the coronavirus problem. They are in total panic, right? It's just a flu.、Um, where in the West we would have a much more, you know, isolate patients and stay calm and try and figure it all out. China, it goes, you know, that. This is deadly, and therefore you you kind of go crazy. So the points of view, the approach, the way the Chinese look at time, for example, if you ask someone at three o'clock, let's do this, every Chinese will ask you in the morning or at night. It's so important to be able to structure your sentences, to create the communication, to create the the point of view that they can understand from their culture. It's very different. It, it's very misunderstood, and it's one of the things that I do mostly here in China. Is I try to explain back to Westerners what does this mean to China? What's their point of view on this topic? And so many times you'll read in the news something really simple, and oh, this is the way Chinese think,、uh, or or China, for example, is slowing. Well, you know, China has been growing massively, and for the last eight years, it's been slowing. So, from the China point of view, it's a good thing. From the Westerners' point of view, this is a disaster, and China's heading for collapse. You know, the, the, these are the kinds of different things you look at government structure. China has come from an emperor-type management system through, you know, let's say five thousand odd years of its existence, where we come through a more of a democratic approach to looking at government and institutions. You know, could Chinese even? Switch to dem- democracy would be difficult because their point of view is they've always run their system in a certain way. Even the households are run in ways. Companies are run much more like an emperorship than, let's say, a Western-style company. So that's where you get a very different understanding of what are people trying to tell you on very simple subjects. Their thinking is very different. People in the West call China. A communist country is that a thing anymore? Is that even true? And and if it is, what is communism in the year two thousand twenty? That's a great question. And you know the reason it's communist is because Mao, back in the days of the the war with Japan, they they were trying to search for a partner, and the big the closest partner to them was Russia, and Russia. Of course, was a communist country based on fundamental principles. China wasn't. China was an emperorship. They just took on those kinds of thoughts because of Russia's close relationship to them. But let's say if we look at the practicality to today and what does communism mean, you do have state-owned companies, and that's from the old Russian system. You have a little bit of a planned economy, but at the same time, and this is what China brings that's very unique. Is you can have two sides to a story at the same time. There is no place I have ever been that's more capitalistic. 
You go to the store and you can negotiate really everywhere. Even a department store, you could actually, you know, at least ask for a better deal. When we bought, shop online with Taobao, you talk to the person selling the goods and you always negotiate at least shipping or a lower price if you can find it somewhere else and you go back and forth. So China is, to me, the most capitalistic country that I've ever been to. Everything is negotiated. Every deal is negotiated. And often, even after it's negotiated, it gets renegotiated. It's just constantly in a dynamic capitalistic pattern. <laughs> so you have two sides at the same time existing where there are some mm -hmm. historical elements to a communist structure, but this isn't. This is really, to me, an emperorship with massive capitalistic influences. One of the biggest themes I came across in China was Guanxi. Can you explain a little bit about what that is and how important it is in China? It means, first, you have some sort of relationship. And in China, there's generally two very general types of relationship. You know someone from school or you know someone from personal or business. Those are very distinctive Guanxi relationships. And the more you know people the more than you can ask things from them, and they will then, of course, ask things from you. So like for another, for example, one of my very good friends in Beijing, you know, we are very close, long, you know, I've known him for 20 years, and he asked me to buy him a camera in Hong Kong, and you know, when you come back, if your relationship is that strong, I can't even really ask him to pay me for it. So I have to give, him, give it to him, and then some point in time, he'll, he'll return that kind of, relationship down the road. So it's a very strong tie, more than friendship, I would say. It's much more intertwined. Chinese tend to have fewer friends, and those friends tend to be very close. Even in, let's say, in the hockey world, if you're belonging to one group, you really can't play with the other group. It's, you know, the Guanxi relationships are very defined, they're very structured, and they have strong meaning. And really, I would say for me, you don't have a friend in China until after you know someone for 10 years. Time is very important in China, not even so much as frequency. But if you know someone for so much time, then you can sort of look upon them as asking them anything and they will, they will respond. And people need to count on each other, especially through the government system that can change every day. That's why sometimes you'll see a lot of companies taking actions that we don't understand. They're not long-term in thinking even though China is a long-term thinking country. And the reason is tomorrow, everything could change. The rule could be different. So if you don't take advantage of it now, you know, things, things could change. Does that impact customer service or customer retention or customer loyalty or the lack thereof? Yeah, I think Chinese are extremely lacking in brand loyalty. Very, very little. They really appreciate it especially in the last you know, previous 10 years, it's actually waning now. But, you know, the bag story, I'm sure as everyone's heard, uh, where, you know, Louis Vuitton and, uh, you know, Chanel and Gucci and all these brands are extremely well recognized. The, uh, the, the, on the same side, though, that if there's another brand that comes along that tends to have a better prestige, you know, people will change overnight you know starbucks has a great prestige makes you know i would say poor coffee um but people would change in a minute uh off of that brand if they felt there was another brand that met their that met their requirements you have to remember the chinese have been consumers for about 20 years previously it was really survival in the last 20 years they've been getting into consumption 
So they're really all about, let's try this, let's try that, let's go here, let's go there, and you know, test everything out. I think you'll see brands develop certainly more over time, but I think we're still needing uh, to take time. So there is also what is the great opportunity for business people in China, is it's not that difficult to break in and build a brand. Where the problem is, is one, you got to get through all the government red tape, and that goes for the Chinese. The one thing I can tell you is I've never met a Chinese who said, boy, it's easy doing business in China. You know, you hear a lot of complaints by foreigners, and I tell the foreigners, the Chinese feel the same thing. So you've got that as a problem to developing your brand. You certainly have to get out and compete. That's tough, but you can develop brand new brands. In my time working in the medical industry, you would actually see the smallest brands in the world be very successful in the medical industry because they were willing to be flexible and work with the Chinese much more than the big brands. The big brands always think that they're going to lose something. They always approach China from the point, how, you know, what am I going to lose where the smaller brands can be successful because they look at what's the opportunity. But it's a simple solution. You know, I tell companies that ask me these kind of questions, all you need to do is create multiple brands. Keep your protected, well-known brand the way it is. But if you don't start to build your product to the Chinese, the Chinese eventually will do it. Like simple things like cell phones. You know, you look at the way, you know, the mass market cell phones are made and then they try to sell them in China. And the attitude of the Westerner is, hey, if it's good enough for a Westerner, it should be good enough for you. And then all the Chinese companies, what they do is they put tiny little things, tiny pieces of software or little tiny features on the cell phones that create that brand differential for them. And they'll buy it, even though they're brand conscious and, you know, Apple's iPhone used to be massive. Now it's down to about 9% market share because the Chinese have you know, been able to build their own brands very quickly, very fast. I use a phone called an Oppo, O-P-P-O, uh, a brand that probably most people have never even heard of, charges your phone in 20 to 30 minutes. So that's a feature that I much prefer than, let's say, a Western phone. And of course, over the years, the Westerners have lost their market share and the Chinese have gained because the Chinese have built in structure to their products that are Chinese. And if you don't come into China thinking that you're going to have to do that at some point, you're, you're never going to succeed because everybody's going to provide a product with similar characteristics, maybe copy, and you know they'll, they'll usually surpass it. Another great example is Taobao. You know, I've used Amazon and I've used Taobao. Taobao was a copy, but they went way further in improving it where you have interaction with the seller, negotiating capability. It's so incredible, the power of buying things on Taobao. When I go to Amazon to this day, I still go, my goodness, when are they going to get out of the dark ages? You know, the interaction, the ability of buying things, is the selection is much poorer, is much, much less. And even though you know, Amazon was first, it's nowhere near the quality of Taobao. You can get your stuff anywhere in China. You know, the power that Taobao has brought, and brought to the country is incredible because you can be in some little place in the middle of nowhere in Xinjiang province and order any, anything you want that's available anywhere in the world. So the speed that the Chinese are able, that's why the economy is being able to catch up. They have these incredible systems that have enabled the country to catch up to the West at an ra you know, extremely rapid pace. And Taobao is certainly part of that. 
Can you talk a little bit about the rise in consumerism in China? And is it fair for the rest of the world to be looking at China and to be upset with them for the amount of pollution that they are creating currently at the pace they're creating it? Consumers here, you know, there's so many of them. One of the, the biases that we generate is that we often run into the very rich. They come to different countries and they give you an impression of the Chinese. That's not the Chinese, right? That's a, a tiny percent of the, the people here. And so with these huge mass of people, as they expand their economic power increases, they want to try, they want to you know, touch things and do things, you know, back to the cars, right? Cars here are all brand new. There's very few, only 25%. The government does not encourage car ownership. Even your ability to consume is very difficult. You, you even got now, for example, you want to buy a house in Beijing. You know, if you already own one, there's huge restrictions on how you have to sell it. Now you don't have to wait so long. You, you have to have uh, paid taxes for a long time. China is very restrictive on their own people in terms of consumerism. And then let's say we go into more of the discussion of pollution. You go to some cities in China, and I'm sure you've seen this uh, taught a lot. You look on the roofs, every single house has solar water heating. Yep. There's been some cities where I never saw a building that didn't have it. Yep. In my neighborhood, I'm just looking out here. I'm on a, I can see the top level. There are three houses with solar water heating. There's two houses with solar panels. It's extremely conscientious. I, was, I spent a month in British Columbia uh, in December, and I couldn't find anyone using anything solar, nothing to conserve energy. They have huge wind farms here. There's more wind power produced than anywhere else in the world. So China is doing things. Are they doing things the way we want? Of course not. They're doing things on their own way. Are they doing things fast enough for the world? No, and, and probably I can only see things getting worse. But again, what do we do? Do we just say, China, sorry, we blew it. When I was a kid in Montreal, I remember people throwing things in the ground. And I remember the game changer was CBC having an advertisement with an Indian paddling down a river and crying. And, and that was sort of a big game-changing moment for Canadians where they finally stopped polluting so so ridiculously and you know now it's fantastic china still needs to go through that and that's part of its evolution of being economically powerful you know poor people not so well educated getting a chance to consume smoke a cigarette you know drinks some alcohol and then they don't understand that there's some responsibility to your your you know your cigarette butt that's going to come and that's coming it's getting better it's going to take more time. It disappoints me sometimes that the government doesn't push it more, but I, I do feel the richer people that have the economic power, they have the awareness, and the poor people don't. And I think that's just a function of time. Can you briefly speak to the juxtaposition between the culture of education and the culture of sports in China? Sports, I would say, is very slow in coming. Chinese have a very practical approach Education is a way that they can have a chance to make a difference. You have the system of a test called the Gaokao, and that will set your whole life up. So Chinese study their whole lives to get to a point where they, put an, they get to an exam. The exam will then decide which universities they go to. And this is what a lot of people don't even understand is that when they interact, let's say, with the Chinese and the, in their universities, they think they're getting the best students. The best students are in China because they're given 
the opportunity to go to the Chinese, you know, which are, have some excellent universities uh, around here. And so they're, they're really what they're doing is focusing their energy on their top performers and putting them into the best universities. And if you look even at, you know, I've written a 300 page report on Chinese education. And, you know, one of the things that you, you get out of it is China is investing heavily in education. The education system, certainly from a dollar point of view of invested to output is incredible. And if you look at the, uh, the, the universities, you know, previously there used to be just uh, Beijing University, Beida or Tsinghua, and now there's 32 universities on the top 500 list. So that's where things I would say are very different is that China is dynamic, it's moving forward. You look at our education system, it's pretty much locked in, a little bit of dynamicism from time to time, but not so much. China is very much moving forward. So education is what's all about. Sports has a place, but what I find, especially since I have a son in the sports system, is that it is a bit self-regulating. They want the high performers, just like they do in the schools. They don't really want people to play hockey, for example, just for fun. There's no space for that. The coaches do one-on-one -on -one training. One-on-one -on -one training is 90% of what goes on here. They want their child to be the best. They want their child to you know, carry the puck from end to end. They're not into the team concept. So you don't get that part of the sports where it's for exercise and social. It's really for achieving something. So I talked to a goalie uh, who's about eight years old and her, it was a girl actually, and she wanted to get into a school and she could do it if she reached a certain level of hockey ability. So I would say even sports are looked upon more as an ends to a means as opposed to, let's say, a process. Is China truly innovative? Yeah, China is not. It's adaptive. It's not innovative. And, and I think, again, that's a function of economics. Let's say even, for example, on patents. Certainly, there's more patents being filed now by the Chinese, but the Chinese don't care as much. And, and the reason they don't is they don't make many novel patentable products. And that's because they're catching up. You look at any poor country, whether it's in Africa or in Asia, Thailand's a good example, they follow no patents on medicine. And that's because they believe copying all medicine is in the better interest of the people to have low-cost pharmaceuticals. So really, to me, the, the people, the countries that made the patent laws are the rich countries that had a lot to lose, and they want to enforce their point of view on every other country, where the Chinese point of view is, how do we just catch up? How do we just get a cell phone? How do we just have a watch, maybe a car, maybe a home? That's about it. You know, their, their requirements are still pretty basic on what do they want to accumulate? And certainly it'll increase with economic power. So only through time, as China continues to innovate and they start to spend more money, really not so much on development, because when we look at research, it's usually broken down into two segments, research and development. China is a development country, taking a lot of products, medical, whatever it is, and developing them further to meet the Chinese characteristics, but they're not really researching novel. And that, again, that's just a function of time as they need to do. 5G may be something that you hear, there's a few things, but it's very, very few, few and far between. But you need economic power. There's a very strong correlation to how wealthy your country is and how innovative it is. You're in the world of financial advising now. 
Can you talk to us a little bit about the U.S.-China trade agreement, the phase one, and the impact that it's having? Well, this is a very complicated issue, but it's really driven politically. It's a U.S. political issue where the U.S. and Trump did a very smart thing. He saw trade was $500 billion of importing of Chinese products, and the Chinese were importing 136 or so. So, hey, that's not correct. But the problem is that a trade deficit within countries like this is all coming from individuals, really capitalism. American individually are buying goods from China. This is not the Chinese government or the U.S. government. There's no interaction between governments. It's individual people. They choose their supplier based on quality and price. And the Chinese are really good at making products based on quality and price, especially where there's a high labor component to it. And so you create a trade balance with a really rich country against a very poor country. You know, if you look at purchasing power, power or any of these numbers, roughly the U.S. is at 60,000, China is somewhere between eight and 12,000. It's a huge disparity. So you're always going to have a differential. But what you're really doing by highlighting this is you're saying to Americans, we don't want you buying cheap quality goods that are good for your business. We want to decide what you choose, which is kind of crazy. In my opinion, that's kind of like the way you would expect China to operate its economy, which is not. China is letting these companies provide goods the way they want. Now, China has been jumping in from time to time saying, we'll buy some, some soybeans or something, but it's still not going to be the Chinese government. It's going to be individual com- companies that we're buying from X and being forced to buy from Y, which is not capitalistic. So it's a very funny situation, even currency controls. Everybody who knows anything about China, China actually artificially inflates its currency and yet it's being called a currency manipulator, let's say, compared to Japan, which that's its actual national strategy is currency manipulation. So these are complicated things. So when you get into resolution of a political issue that actually is based on individual preferences, and by the way, the way you solve this dispute is you just say, Americans, stop buying Chinese, boycott them. You don't need tariffs. If you really believe it and you think that's important, that's going to do you better. And guess what happens? Individual Americans do not. They do not choose that. And they prefer to buy something that helps their business. It makes a lot of capitalistic sense. So when you try to make a deal based on politics, you're going to get a political deal. And this is why the dispute has been going on for so long. The Chinese are approaching this from the other point of view, which is the economics, the facts, the numbers. And they're arguing a lot of these issues, like on the iPhone. The iPhone gets made in China, but China only puts in $10 of a $400 phone. The rest are actually coming from Japan, Korea, Germany, and Taiwan. And the beauty of it for these other countries is they throw their products into China, they get assembled in China, but China gets charged for it all. Japan gets nothing in terms of their trade account. So, You have a very complex issue. Probably a third of the deficit is just related to other parts come from other countries and assembled in China. And when you have this kind of complexity, you're not going to have a solution. And so what we've seen on phase one is really zero. It's just something that Trump can go to say, look what I've done. I've created a new deal. But really, almost all the tariffs are continuing in place. Very little has been resolved. And I don't see anything being resolved so long as it stays on a political point of view. But let's look at steel, for example. There's a tariff on Chinese steel. Chinese are the 22nd largest importer of steel to the U.S., meaning nothing. That's just zero. 
tiny, tiny importer, yet there's a steel tariff. And what that makes is all the companies in the U.S. need to buy more expensive steel because it's made by American companies. They have much higher requirements on pollution and everything else. And my personal comment is, why would you want to make steel anyways? It's a very polluting, you know, not a good thing to be making. You need blast furnaces and all sorts of other things that are not very exciting to an economy. But worst is you create artificial inflation in steel. Steel is about $100 minimum a ton. It's been up to twice as expensive over the last couple of years. And that goes to flows into car industry, appliances, all the downstream industries that make the U.S. less competitive. So it's a complicated issue that can't get resolved so long as the Chinese don't approach this as a political issue and they, they, they approach this as a, a factual economics agreement and the Americans are just looking at it as from a political issue. You just you can't get resolution. Talk a little bit about your eight years, the CLSA, you know, how Westerners can even approach researching financials around Chinese companies. And I think some good examples of just even looking at the electric car business, you know, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a great question. So the first thing that's very interesting is uh, I used to always tell my clients, I'm the number one analyst at CLSA in China. And the reason I would say that is because I was the only one. All the analysts in the financial world, they live in Hong Kong. It's a very strange thing. It, it has a lot of history to it and, and convenience, et cetera. Um, but really, everybody watches China from Hong Kong, which really, to me, is bizarre. So what we read today are all the analysts in China. I read all these reports from people in New York and London, and I always wonder, how the heck can they know this, especially in a country like China that's changing so rapidly? And I think that's one of the reasons I have done well as an analyst is because I'm right here on the ground and I can go check, you know, Mercedes says their sales are up. I can just pop over to the Mercedes dealership, which is about five minutes away from my house. And I can talk and check and see what's going on, the consumers, different models, et cetera. But if you're sitting in Hong Kong, New York, or London, you're not going to be able to do that. You're just going to have to read some other buddy, buddy's report. So what ends up happening in the financial world is you sort of have groupthink. And it really moves the individual stocks in that way, where one person puts out a bit of data, everybody else repeats it, everybody else puts it out in the reports, and then everybody's following the same sort of thing. And really, you're missing the huge opportunity for beta, uh, for alpha growth. When I follow an American stock, the reporting requirements are excessive. They're you know, quarterly results. It's very short-term and hourly focused. All the data and the companies, you call the companies, they'll tell you everything. In China, it's the opposite. They'll tell you nothing unless you have Guanxi and build a relationship. I remember the first time I went to see Angang, a, a steel uh, mill, the second largest steel maker up in northern China. We never talked business the whole first day. We just drank, had uh, ate, and talked. Never. At the very end, five minutes left in our meeting, which was about three hours long, he said, okay, what do you want to know? And he gave me about five minutes to actually talk about the business. That's how the Chinese work. You have to have a relationship. They have no, no reason to tell you anything. Reporting is on a biannual basis. The data gathering systems are not very good anyways, and the analysts don't live in China. So when you put all that together, you know, let's say, for example, you're in the U.S. and you're talking about the luxury car market, 
you can actually know. You can visit dealerships, you can talk to the head office, and they'll tell you things, but not in China. And so, for example, in the luxury car market, you'd have to go visit all the dealerships uh, to really get a sense and even probably look at provincially and, and, and different levels. So it's much more complicated. It's much more variable. So what you find is the analysis and the level of understanding of China is not very good. It's not very deep because most people don't live here. And so they're always in the state of catch up. I find I write reports. Like I remember one client used to say, when I read your reports, I put them away for six months and bring them back out because by then the rest of the world's going to catch up and understand this is what's going on in China. Uh, so it, it's a very different markets with different reporting, different openness in terms of the businesses. So don't believe anything you read, just believe Scott. <laughs> or people like you that have boots on the ground and are actually in the throes of it. So I actually used to write reports the opposite way. I used to tell always the foreign investors all the problems in the Chinese company and what was wrong and, and what they needed to overcome. In the last five years, I'm doing the opposite. I'm sort of saying to investors, here how they have overcome. Here is what they're doing well. Here's how they're dynamically you know, moving ahead. Like I've mentioned to you, for example, in the auto industry, the company called NEO. They, they have some financial issues, but this company is an amazing technological company that actually produced a production car that ran around the Nürburgring, the fastest ever in the world. They held the record for about a year. They've lost it since because they're not making this car anymore. And they make a fantastic electric car. Personally, I, I don't like any of the Chinese car makers. I think quality is poor and substandard. But this is a unique company that's actually making something interesting. So you'll get this sort of stuff, but most people don't understand it. Most people haven't test driven it like I have. Most people haven't you know, been to the dealerships and, and met them. So that's where you get a problem. And with the disinvestment in journalism, you get much more of, hey, here's what I heard kind of approach as opposed to, to doing things. So even me, I tend to not do a lot of interviews because my clients don't really like that I'm sharing all this information with a lot of people since I'm here in China, uh, they, they much prefer to hear it directly first. So sometimes I'll put out reports, but usually much later down the road. But th this is the issue that's going on. A lot of things are misunderstood. A lot of people don't understand the culture. And a lot of people are not sitting here talking to people every day. I, I can tell you, one of the biggest things I do is I get tons of information just when I go play hockey with my Chinese friends. We sit in the dressing room, we chat, I ask them about all these issues, we go for dinner afterwards, and you can hear what their thinking is and how they're looking at certain investments or cars or industries or whatever. But even there, you have a massive difference between the A-share market. Everyone will say, hey, look how the A-share market is moving. And the A-share market is just a, a gambling den that's based on maybe one-month analysis where the A-share market that's out of Hong Kong is much longer term and analysis driven. I want to talk about the One Belt, One Road. Tell people what it is, basically, and then let's talk about why it is. And comment at the end, is it no. as nefarious as the Western media is starting to portray it as? These are great questions, and they're very different points of view. Very nuanced, the, I know. So, yeah, we, should, we will say this is all our, you know, this is all opinionated people. Don't know sure. freak out. This is all just our opinions and takes on it. So take it with a grain of salt, but go ahead, Scott. So the first concept is why are the Chinese doing this? So I don't believe it's about industry capacity and all these things. I think it's all about defense. If you look at from the Chinese government's point of view, they have 32 U.S. military bases, THAAD missile system in 
in uh, Korea, all these different containment strategies by the U.S. to control China, to make sure that they can be held in check. And a lot of the world kind of likes that, and there's some, you know, some strong maybe thinking of why that should be. But I always tell people, be careful, because if one day China puts a military base in Mexico, which China and Mexico is getting very good relationships, that may not be very well perceived. And imagine if there were 32 in Canada and Mexico around the U.S. That, you know, life would be different. The thinkings would be different. The approach would be different. So I think what China is doing is they're looking for a system where they can reach out to other countries and develop the old system where other countries used to interact with China. How do we get that to happen again? We can also get some benefits of utilizing capacity, et cetera. But really, China has always been an inward country. It's never been a naval nation. Naval usually refers to going outside of your borders to conquer other territory. China has not done that. China has been inward focused, trying to control its own people. You look at the camera system, you know, it's all about how do we control this country internally. That's what they're focused on. That's what they have interest in. They're not that culturally sensitive to other countries and how to do things. Uh, but here's another nuance that they're doing that is giving them an advantage. What they do is they go into a country. So I've just come back from Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, and Kazakhstan. They'll go into these poor countries. They're Muslim countries, uh, very similar to the Xinjiang province style of people. Uh, and in these countries, what they do is they go in with no requirements, no, no needs of following of open media, doing this or doing that. They have no requirements. When the U.S. goes in to give money to a country, it has a list of requirements. And the list usually is a lot of a reflection on the U.S. system. They want every country to follow them, and they give these requirements. If you do this, 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 we give you money. China goes in and says, we give you money, but we charge you. And that's where the nefarious part has come in. Well, it's the percent. You, it's the interest charge, and it's the interest amount. And almost well, like they know that they're, they're going to default. I can't imagine you criticizing a bank deal of this bank, uh, you know, Bank of Montreal lending money to X business at a certain interest rate. There's a, look at credit card rates, they're at 24%. Yet nobody seems to have a big issue with those kind of deals. Now, the Chinese go in, they negotiate, if the country agrees, which they don't have to, they're not forcing them to agree. They're saying, we'll give you these benefits at these rates. Now, most of the rates that I've looked into are between one to 4%. Now, do they know that they cannot afford to pay those kind of rates back? Again, I've visited a lot of these countries and I've seen it. You know, you go through Pakistan and see the investment in the rail and road. Of course, a lot of their reason for doing this is so they can ship their goods more efficiently. And by the way, I've visited these roads. These roads are spectacular. You can always tell a Chinese road from a local road. They're so, they're excellent in quality. You drive them, it's just like driving on air. So they are definitely going in, building infrastructure, doing a great job. Unfortunately, they're also often using Chinese labor, which doesn't really help the local economies. But the question then becomes is, what's a fair deal? What's a fair rate? They're n I've never seen 8% or something. Uh, there may be a couple of them. I don't, I'm not aware of them. But most of them are actually reasonable deals. But these countries don't have the economic power to pay them back. And as part of the agreement, they are able to take assets back. That's how it's worked out. But that's how every capitalistic deal has worked out. 
And I think where the West is getting it wrong is they think they're do- China is going into countries for <clears throat> helping them in a socialistic way, helping them for the sake of you know, being nice guys. That's not what they're doing. They're going into countries for economic gain, for making an economic deal. And whatever deal they can get is there. Now, the Westerners, we're going to judge and say, well, they didn't make a really fair deal. Well, first of all, the country agreed to it. Secondly, what is a fair deal? Is a fair deal negative interest? Is a fair deal? I mean, I don't know. And I honestly don't have the answer to it. But these are economic deals, and they have no strings attached. And what the Chinese want to do is their strategic plan is to go in, build infrastructure, make it easy for them to do trade and go maybe through the country, let's say in the case of Kyrgyzstan, is to keep going through them. They don't really care so much about selling to Kyrgyzstan, but they care to keep going on through Europe. And so that is their bigger plan. So, you know, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Should they be able to allowed to do it? I mean, I don't know. That, those are now going to come down to value questions. But are they improving the countries they're going into? Absolutely. What is your number one piece of advice for companies, brands, people looking to come to China? Yeah, I mean, you know, my hope is that foreign companies come to China. And the reason is, I think that makes the world a safer place. The more we interact and the more we work together, the more we integrate our systems, you're going to have a much better chance of working out your disputes. What I worry about is this sort of country individualism thing we're starting to see. And so that definitely concerns me. Part of being successful in China, though, is you have to understand the way things are done. If you bring in the baggage of, for example, which I hear all the time, well, Americans love my product. Why don't the Chinese? You know, it, that's hard to work out with a company because they're coming in with a lot of biases of what has worked and they're going to assume it's going to be perfect here in this country. You've got to know and understand the local market. You've got to know where does your product fit. You should consider multiple brands, you know, protect the major brand and maybe bring off offshoot, lower end brands and other brands. So I would say it's understanding the market, understanding what you have to gain or to lose, understanding that you may not have always the, the, the choice that you're going to come to China. Maybe you're not ready. I, my brother-in-law once he owns a software company, and he asked me about that. I said, please don't come here. Software is not perceived as an item to be paid for. It's perceived as an item to be copied. Chinese like to touch and feel things. If you're not giving them a product, they can touch and feel. They don't feel they're getting value. And that's where this market is at this current stage. It will change with time. Microsoft's got a fantastic strategy, which is let everybody copy their software, and then slowly businesses that are becoming more successful and economically stronger are paying for it. And they're seeing their business explode, but it's coming from a, a system of copying. So you have to understand that market. You have to understand how you're going to build that market, have a long-term plan, understand your market, understand the weaknesses and strengths like you would really even in your own country. I, I find a lot of people just come here and they just expect success. They expect the Chinese to bend to their process or their will, like in the medical industry. A lot of people say, why do I have to get approval in China when I have FDA approval? And, and so if you have those kind of attitudes, it's not going to be conducive to a, a successful uh, business in China. But if you come in with a flexible and ever-changing approach, things change rapidly in China. 
uh, you're going to have a much better chance of success. Scott, thanks for coming on the show. How can people get in touch with you or follow you or uh, catch up with your content, any of that? You can certainly learn more about what we're doing at researchfrombeijing.com. So, of course, I try to highlight that because we're sitting here on the ground in Beijing uh, with me and my staff looking Mm -hmm. at things on the ground. What I'm trying to do is give the other side to let you know that the people here in China are not making dumb decisions. They're making decisions based on their point of view, with their set of information, with their set of data points. And that's what I try to help foreigners understand. Why are the Chinese doing what they're doing and what will they do next? The good news is it's very easy to predict that. Well, I appreciate your honesty, and uh, I'm sure our listeners understand that uh, all viewpoints and everything we discuss is just, uh, you know, a couple of people and and all our guests in in general are just talking about what they feel, what they think, and what they've seen and what they've experienced, and that's what this show is all about. So thank you very much, Scott. It's It's a pleasure. It was great talking with you, Todd. Thank you for the opportunity. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at wpic.co and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.